0: Well, uh, let's turn in our Bibles once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. Um, If you don't have a Bible, I hope you have a friend or family member nearby to you who can share with you or that you can maybe bring it up on your phone. Because here at Trinity, we are committed to the conviction that it's not really my words that we need to hear it's the word of the Lord so we want to keep our noses in the text of the living and acting active word of God so let's turn to 1st Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 13 just to orient us here where we are in this letter from the apostle Paul you remember that Paul has been addressing problems in the Corinthian church And so from chapters, well, really the middle of chapter 1 through chapter 4, Paul has been dealing with the problems of division and pride in the Corinthian church. But now, uh, as he shifts to turn to a different problem, the problem of sexual sin in the church of Corinth, Paul brings up a topic that is virtually unheard of, For many Christians today, uh, the topic of church discipline. In my preparation, I looked into a recent survey done by the the Barna Research Group, and they found that only 5% of American Christians say that they belong to a church that holds them accountable in any way for what they believe and how they live. 5%. 5% of American Christians. Why is that? Well, it's certainly not because the Bible is silent about the issue of church discipline. The Barnard Research Group went on to explore that question, why is this? And they found three primary reasons. First reason that they mention is many pastors and church leaders hesitate, if not completely avoid any confrontation with their congregates. And so we might say reason number one for a lack of church discipline is a failure of leadership. Uh, Reason number two, I think, um, is is a conflation or a confusion between being judgmental and exercising discerning judgment. I hope we understand the difference there. So in an attempt to avoid being judgmental, many avoid at all exercising discerning judgment regarding one's beliefs or practices. A third reason, and actually the main reason the Barna Research Group noted lack of discipline in American churches today, is that many of us have adopted uh, a view of personal freedom uh, to the extent that the very idea of being accountable to others, even those with our best interest at heart is, in the words of the Barner Research Group, considered inappropriate, outdated, and rigid. But here's the thing you cannot read through the New Testament without repeatedly running into this biblical idea of mutual accountability in the household of faith, of belonging to. A family of believers who care enough and love each other enough to hold one another accountable to the faith that they confess together. And as we'll see, you can't read 1 Corinthians 5 without hearing the call to faithful, loving church discipline. So let's turn our attention to these verses and read 1 Corinthians 5 1 through 13. All right. it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans or unbelievers. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Well, we've we've finished it, but over the course of the last year and a half, the elders here at Trinity have been reading through a book by uh, Barry York some of you will remember Barry York president at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary who was with us for joint uh, annual Reformation service recently but his book is called uh, Hitting the marks and it's an analysis of the uh, the marks of the church that Protestants have said uh, mark out true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ those three primary marks are the faithful proclamation of God's word, the right administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and the faithful exercise of church discipline. I think we'd all agree that it's that third one that is surely the most often misunderstood and neglected today. And the fact of the matter is the very mention of the practice of church discipline may sound strange, if not offensive, to some professing Christians today. But please do notice how Paul responds to the problem of unchecked sexual sin in the church. In verse 9, we see mention of another previous letter, a letter which has not been providentially preserved for us today, but nevertheless a letter that Paul wrote before 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth where he addressed the issue of sexual immorality in the church. And it's clear that uh, those earlier instructions have, have gone unheeded, and now reports of immorality and ongoing sin have made their way to the Apostle Paul. His earlier admonitions didn't persuade them to address the issue or bring about any kind of repentance. And so now he's forced to write not simply why sexual sin is incompatible in the Christian life, but more than that, to direct the Corinthians in the difficult duty of church discipline. And so verse 2, Paul urges the church to remove the sinner from among them. Verse 3, Paul judges the man. Verse 5, he tells the church to deliver the man over to Satan. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. Verse eleven, he instructs the Corinthians to not associate with the man, and his last bit of instruction in verse thirteen is, "Purge the evil person from among you." Now, I suspect that that sounds really harsh to some people today. Right? Um, you know, come on, Paul, where's the love? Where do you get off? Who are you to judge, Paul? We can imagine those sorts of questions being asked. And so 1 Corinthians 5, it may sound strange and foreign, even offensive in a day where many church leaders have avoided church discipline and where we've confused or conflated judgmentalism with exercising discerning judgment in the household of faith, and where many Christians have adopted an understanding of personal freedom that conflicts with a biblical understanding of what it means to be free. But this is why it's good to work through books of the Bible systematically, isn't it? Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, because it doesn't allow your pastor to jump over difficult passages like this one or passages that perhaps we need to come to in order to have our, our lives and our minds reformed by God's word. And so I want us to consider this passage this morning under three headings. Okay, Three headings to make sense of what Paul teaches here. First of all, the the danger that church discipline addresses. The danger that church discipline addresses. Then secondly, the duty that church discipline requires. And then thirdly, the dynamic that church discipline demands. Okay, so the danger it addresses, the duty it requires, and the dynamic it demands. Let's start with the first the danger that church discipline addresses. Go back to the beginning of the passage, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Now, if you've been with us, you'll remember that the city of Corinth was actually infamous for its immorality, particularly its its sexual promiscuity. Even in the ancient world, it was at that time uh, to Corinthianize was proverbial for sexual perversity and vice. And so it's really not surprising to find that some of these relatively new Christian believers who have been engrafted into Jesus Christ are still struggling with some of the remnants of their former lives. But Paul Paul speaks here about this particular case, um, something that would have been shocking even to the average Corinthian of the day. Even they wouldn't speak about such a thing or name such a thing. A member of the church was sleeping around with what appeared to be his stepmother, and the church knew about it. It was it was public knowledge. But the, the Corinthians, what were they doing? They were boasting. Boasting in their wisdom. Boasting in their spirituality. Boasting in their giftedness. And that's why Paul says in verse 2, you are arrogant. We've already seen how the Corinthians were, were proud of their so-called spirituality. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we discover that their so-called spirituality is actually nothing less than a thin veneer. And the Corinthians are, in fact, infants in the faith. Little children swimming around in a cesspool of sexual sin. But it's not just sexual sin that Paul is concerned with, and it's important that we see this in this passage. That's the particular case that Paul addresses, but he has other concerns too. If you look at verse 11, he mentions the sexually immoral, but also the greedy, idolaters, revilers, drunkards, and swindlers, all of whom are subject to church discipline. So do you see the point that Paul is making? Unrepentant sin, right? habitual sin, needs to be confronted and challenged. Christian accountability within the local church needs to be practiced For all sorts of persistent, aggravated, grievous sin. And in verse 6, Paul tells us why. Take a look at verse 6. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And we might say one one bad apple can spoil the whole barrel. Sin has a way of spreading, doesn't it? Paul here, he's building on... A practice of the Passover where the Jews were to to eat only unleavened bread and so after the Passover lamb uh, was slaughtered they would go throughout the house and they would sweep out the house cleaning out every room we might say every nook and cranny to make sure that there was no leaven no yeast to get into the dough because all it takes you see the point all it takes is just A little, and it's unseen and it's unnoticed, but it can have a pervasive effect. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says. Sin, when left unchecked, tolerated, excused, condoned, and indulged, is like an infection, it will spread. And so the great danger that discipline addresses is the pervasive, yes, quiet and sometimes unnoticed, but like yeast, silently permeating a batch of dough of unrepentant sin. So when excuses for sin are made in one case, then the pressure builds to make the same kind of excuses in another case, and then another, and then another, and then another, until the church is hamstrung. And the, the, the message that is coming forth from the pulpit and the, the teaching ministry of the church is, is going out, while at the same time, the church is refusing to expect the members in the pew to actually conform their lives to the teaching of God's word. And so Paul is warning the Corinthians of a, of a real danger that often goes like this. Sin is overlooked. Sin is excused. And eventually sin is condoned. That's a real danger that discipline addresses. Church discipline is meant to preserve the peace and the purity of the precious bride of Christ. But then, secondly, notice notice the duty that discipline requires. So the, the danger that discipline addresses now, the duty that discipline require suppose for a moment that we all acknowledge that church discipline is necessary okay painful and hard and uh, yes absolutely and we ought to be slow to do it but necessary so what should it look like we'll take a look at verse two Uh, instead of arrogant boasting paul says step one here's step one step one is grief step one is grief ought you not rather to mourn that's the right note that's where the corinthians needed to begin a church that practices church discipline according to scripture takes no joy in it is never pleased with it takes no pride in the exercise of it but rather is marked by godly grief Grief that, that, first of all, such sin was able, able to develop and blossom within their midst. But secondly, also grief for the offender, for the one who is caught in sin. That because of his or her repeated refusal to repent, they must now become the subject of church discipline. So not anger, not glee. Step one, Grief morning tears for for one we love who will not turn back after many repeated entreaties but we have to keep going because paul says whatever grief we we may and ought to feel over it verse 2 let him who does this be removed from among you paul has written to them before remember pleading with them, offering counsel, admonishing them over these very same issues. So this is not a judgment out of nowhere that appears out of the blue. This is part of an ongoing process between the Apostle Paul and the Corinthian church, and they have failed to, to implement and to follow apostolic directives regarding the discipline of this particular unrepentant church member. And so verse 3, he says, uh, as though I were with you, I have already passed judgment. Here's what you're to do. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, he is to be excommunicated in the name of and by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is to be removed from the fellowship of believers and declared to be an unbeliever. He is to be viewed in the eyes of the congregation, of the people of God, as an unbeliever outside of the bounds of the fellowship of God's people. He is, in Paul's words, to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now that's a striking way of putting it, isn't it? To be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. And if you think of the church as as merely a provider of religious goods and services, you know, another social club, this, this language, frankly, will be virtually incomprehensible to you. But if with the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think, Accurately summarizing the teaching of Scripture, you understand the church of Jesus Christ to be the visible kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, outside of which there is ordinarily no possibility of salvation. If we believe the church is a supernatural institution created by God, by His Word and Spirit, if you believe that it is inhabited by the Spirit of Jesus Christ and endowed with real authority by God for the glory of God and the good of the people of God. Well, then these words become incredibly weighty and significant, don't they? Because they tell us that to be put out of the church, now we're not thinking here physically, we're talking here about declaratively. To be put out of the church is to be taken from the visible community of the redeemed living together under the rule of Christ and to be placed in the context or under the sphere of the influence and power of Satan. That's what Paul is saying here. If you look at verses 9 through 13, Paul explains, maybe we're still wondering, what exactly does this mean in terms of the practice of the church? Paul explains this to us in verses 9 through 13. He says uh, that they are not even to associate or eat with those who have been disciplined by the church in this way. Now, is Paul saying, you you know, you need to engage in some sort of Amish shunning of these folks? No, that's, that's not what Paul is after here. I think in light of the earlier reference to the Passover in verses 6 through 8, to keep the feast, I think the Lord's Supper is not far from Paul's mind here. And so when he says that we are not even to eat with such a one, I take that to be a reference to the Lord's Supper. Excommunicated church members are no longer welcome to the Corinthians love feasts where communion was celebrated. They're to be treated in the words of Jesus as... Gentiles and tax collectors as unbelievers meaning they are to be treated that way but we don't shun believers right we're called to we're called to love them and so as he points out he's not saying that he wants Christians to withdraw from everyone who is immoral in some way or another to do that he says in verse 10 would be to suggest that somehow you're going to have to remove yourself from the world this is not counsel saying then that we should become some sort of removed monastic community but he instead is calling the Corinthian church to the practice of godly, faithful, loving church discipline. Okay, so let's, let's use our imaginations here for a minute. Let's try to paint a picture together, okay, of how this played out in the Corinthian church. How church discipline took place in this case. Because we actually do have some indication of what happened with this man Because in the next letter that Paul writes, in 2 Corinthians, we have uh, reason to believe that this very individual was was restored to good standing within the church. So let's try to think about this and, and follow it through. Imagine, after many tears and prayers and pleadings from church members and church leaders, to come to his senses that this man has obstinately persisted in this illicit relationship And so now by the command of the Apostle Paul, uh, with it ringing in their ears, the church gathers for worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, as they did every day. Um, And the man is, before the congregation, excommunicated from their fellowship, removed, formally removed from among them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, incidentally, this is just an aside that we're not going to get into today. I don't know how a church can practice what Paul is talking about here, without some kind of formal church membership. Just something for you to consider. But coming back to this man, this man, he now finds himself on the outside. And though, of course, he's he's welcome to continue to come to the church, He's, he's no longer welcome to come to the Lord's table as he once was. He's no longer treated like a brother among brothers and sisters. Now he is the object of the prayers of God's people and people continue every chance they get to plead with this man to turn around, to come back, to come home and come to Christ. And now when members of the church run into him, perhaps in the public square, maybe you've asked yourself this question. If someone were under church discipline and I were to run into them at Giant Eagle or wherever, what what would I say? Well, here's a sample. Here's an example of one thing you might say this comes from the book i mentioned earlier barry york's book hitting the marks We could say something like this come back return to christ be restored how much longer will you stay away if you say you're unworthy to come back i'll agree with you but then i must say i too am unworthy to come in the first place yet what called me and you then and what calls you now It is the cross. And what is the cross? It was the excommunication of Jesus Christ. Jesus hung there and because of our sin, his father turned away from him, cut him off, forsook him. Why? So that people like you and me could come back home. Come back to Jesus. Like finding a lost sheep that strayed from the fold. What what joy there will be in heaven among the angels if you return to the Lord today. Like finding a valuable lost coin. What rejoicing will be heard in the church if you just come back home. Like a son who has given up for dead. Your heavenly father is looking for you. Ready to embrace you. Longing to tell others why he is celebrating, turn back, come home. That's a sample of something we might say to someone under church discipline. But for a while, at least with this particular man in Corinth, he continued to feel free, at least for a time, to indulge in this vice with impunity. Nothing seemed to trouble his conscience any longer. But after some time, the joy of his sin began to fade and it started to feel empty and void and soon he he found himself remembering with fondness and with regret the comfort he once knew among the fellowship of believers in the household of faith as together they would talk about the gospel of God's saving grace for undeserving sinners like him. Increasingly he found himself longing for that again, he, he felt a sense of his danger being outside of the community of God's people. He felt a deep sense that he had offended the Lord. And slowly but surely, the Lord worked by the discipline this man received. It became to him, we might say, a means of grace. And his conscience that before refused to repent began to wake up and he felt convicted over his sin and he came to see the awful tragic exchange that he had made. Swapping the joy and peace of the family of God for the temporary pleasures of fleeting sin. And now he sees that this was a horrible exchange. Now he sees how deceived he was and One day he he couldn't take it any longer and he made his way to the gathering together of God's people, all defiance now gone from his eyes. Tears began to flow as he heard again the good news of Jesus Christ who is able to wash the foulest clean. And so he came back and then he came back the next week and then he came back the week after that and week by week the Lord was at work in his heart and in his conscience until he came before the elders and confessed through tears his sin. He poured out his remorse and made plans to make amends for all whom he had wronged. And then one Sunday the day came when the Lord's table was set before the congregation and that man was welcomed back and restored into the communicant membership of the church. And the church together rejoiced in the restoring grace of God In Jesus Christ, the flesh was destroyed, as Paul puts it, and his spirit was saved. That's what it looked like worked out through church discipline imposed. He was recovered and restored to good standing. And so the danger discipline addresses the duty discipline requires. It's it's hard. It's sore. Frankly, it's a heartbreaking work and yet as we pray and plead with God for the one discipline God can make it a means of grace for their restoration but then thirdly notice the dynamic that discipline demands take a look at verses six and eight now as I said Paul is developing the illustration about how the Passover works Leaven is to be you know, ruthlessly purged from the home so that the bread can be unleavened. And so he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Isn't that interesting? The church here is likened, God's people are likened to unleavened bread. And Paul's saying, This is what you really are, not literally, but figuratively. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So what is Paul saying to them, to these believers in Christ? He's saying, in essence, be who you really are. Who God in Christ by grace made you to be. Live out who you already are by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Not just individually in your Christian life as you discipline yourself to walk in holiness before the Lord. Clinging to Jesus every moment of every day. But corporately together as you hold one another accountable in your walk. Be who you are saints. Paul is saying set apart ones for God by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. For he says in verse 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see, dear friends, the good news of the crucified lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our true Passover lamb, Changes everything. Because Jesus died and shed his blood for us. We are saved. We are saved from condemnation. And we are saved from the tyrannizing power of sin in our lives. And if we're to keep the festival of celebration for all that Jesus has done for his people. Then the old leaven of sin is simply not welcome in our lives any longer and so in light of the cross in light of what jesus has done my friends what will we refuse to do to conform to all that jesus christ calls us to we sing it all the time don't we love so amazing so divine demands my life my soul my all jesus has died so he has claimed to everything Not just some of us, not just part of us, but all of us and all of us together. The cross changes everything. Paul is saying live in light of the cross. Live in the light of the grace of God and the love of Jesus who gave all for you. And you will see in the light of the Lamb of God crucified for you that sin is not to be played with. Sin is not to be trifled with. Sin is not to be indulged in. In celebration... Of Jesus' work, we are to live individually and corporately a life of holiness and purity. You see, we want nothing else but to please Him, Lord Jesus, to live for Him. Together as a family, as the people of God. And when one of us turns aside, when one of us stumbles, as we will do, We use all of the means that God has appointed, given to us to get through to them in an effort to win them back and see them restored. And so Paul is asking us in light of the cross to really be who Christ died to make us. Please understand the the way Paul is putting this. He's not saying By your own strength and might achieve this reality. He's saying this reality has already been won for you in Christ Jesus. So be who Jesus Christ died to make you. That's what he's saying here. Unleavened. That is holy. Not not perfect for sure. But striving together by the grace of God to live for him as we celebrate the festival with joy and gratitude. Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb who has been sacrificed and therefore nothing can ever be the same again. He has died. And with his own lifeblood, he has purchased us for himself. He has risen, he has risen victorious over sin and Satan and death and hell And now we are his, and we live together as the church, as the people of God, under his loving rule. And so the danger discipline addresses. Paul's words, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Discipline serves to protect the peace and the purity of the church. And the duty that discipline requires, in Paul's words, cleanse out the old leaven, hard and painful Though it may be to do, it is to be done as an act of love, and by the grace of God, it may win back the wandering sinner. And then finally, the dynamic that discipline demands. Dear friends, if we live in light of the cross, seeing how much and how Christ has loved us, or well, we will learn to love what Christ loves and want to please him in the way that we live and conduct ourselves. And so we will cherish holiness and we will, we will love one another enough to practice faithful, tender, sympathetic, gentle, patient accountability within the household of faith. Calling each other to walk with us as we seek to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ faithfully and so my friends may the Lord may the Lord strengthen us to to live in light of the cross for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed and therefore let's be who he died to make us let's pray together our father in heaven we confess that this passage it's it's hard it's It's hard to think about, it's even harder to practice. Uh, We confess that we are prone to like a version of Christianity that remains at the level of doctrine and does not sink down into the depths of our lives. And yet you call us, you call us not only to the form of godliness, but to the reality of it, the substance of it. And so we ask that you would bring us all back to Calvary afresh today. To see Christ, our Passover lamb, sacrificed for us and strengthen us to live for him, to live personally and corporately for the glory of your name. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.